So here we are. Another evening. I've forgotten what day it is. But we're pretty far into this retreat, the last full night. There was a um, there was a note we were waiting outside, and there was a note on the board uh, that gave us all a good laugh, and it said, "Forget about the cookies. Where's the sriracha?" <laughs> <laughs> so we all were like very much bowed to that <laughs> because I don't really have any cookie jokes for this retreat or this talk. But the, um, that was funny, so appreciate your humor. And, and I actually inquired about the sriracha. It should be around tomorrow, just so you know. <laughs> I, was, I was very concerned myself. <clears throat> so it's interesting to give a talk at the kind of last evening of the retreat and the question that kind of kept coming up for me is, what's left? What's left? We've talked about so many things here. And uh, so much uh, essential kind of Dharma teachings, uh, Buddhist teachings. And it occurred to me that what we haven't talked a lot about is the Buddha himself. And so I'm going to take a, a, I'm going to give you my own kind of version of uh, talking about Siddhartha Gautama, otherwise known as the Buddha. And I'm also going to blend in uh, some of the elements that we've been really working with this weekend, or this week. I told you I didn't remember what day it was. And then also, um, I feel like it's important to talk a little bit about what's happening for me in my life, kind of personally. So I'm hoping to weave that all together in a nice little package known as a Dharma talk. (laughs) So we'll see how it goes. So I call this talk, uh, well, there's two titles. The working title is uh, The Journey Inward. Uh, But really, what I think about when I think about the Buddha is I think about the hero's journey. And when I think about the hero's journey, or the shiro's journey, let's be uh, open. This idea that the Buddha's life is not only his life, but it's also a teaching. That the story of the Buddha is a teaching in itself. And the transformation uh, that the Buddha went through. And then, so for us, how can we relate to this man, this human, who lived 2,600 years ago and might have looked like this? This is actually a Sri Lankan version I don't, even, I don't even know how long, 800 years after the Buddha died, maybe? A thousand years after the Buddha died? So, we don't really know. 
But the understanding of uh, the teaching of the Buddha has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And I like to actually take the Buddhist uh, story and Siddhartha Gautama's story as not just the kind of historical Buddha, but this archetypal story kind of found within, uh, say, Jungian psychology. The hero, this is where I got the the hero's journey. And in all hero's journeys, you know, Jason and the Argonauts and the Greek myths, and there's all of these stories in the Bible and all of these journeys, these heroic journeys that I think that we can all relate to. And so the formula goes like this. There's a calling. There's a departure. There's some struggle. There's some awakening. And there's some return. And so this is going to be the formula that I'm going to use to kind of weave in all of these uh, pieces. So for us, you know, how has there been struggle? How has the departure been? Has there been awakening within this five-day experience or four-and-a-half-day experience? And so I'll be paralleling that along with the uh, teachings of the Buddha and recapping some of the points that I think blend in that have already been brought up. So first of all, I want to, or second of all, I want to say that, you know, to me, Siddhartha Gautama, uh, and not just me, many others, was considered a philosopher, was considered a great healer, was considered a holy man. And for a lot, a lot of people considered the first psychiatrist or psychoanalyst. So I'll be using also some kind of like a, the medical view and talking about his uh, diagnosis. And his prescription. I even, uh, you know, in a lot of my study, I've been working uh, with, well, I studied Buddhism and psychology uh, in my grad program. And uh, now I've kind of combined them to call it Buddhology. (laughs) It's my new new phrase, Buddhology. Just bought the website. Because I feel like uh, Buddhism speaks directly to the wounds of the mind and the healing of the mind. And this is, in case you haven't noticed, what we're doing. Right? Because we call it bodhicitta, this kind of uh, heart-mind. So I'll talk more about that later. I also want to say one of the things that I appreciate about the Buddhist teachings, the way that I interpret them, the way that I have kind of discovered them, is that they're practical, is that they're pragmatic, is that they're useful tools that can be applied. And I believe this is the intention that the Buddha had. So the calling. So it's kind of reflect in what inspired you to practice? What was your, maybe close your eyes or just kind of get in for a moment to your own calling to this practice? 
Was it a book? Was it some teaching? Was it the profound loss or suffering? Just to reflect on the inspiration. Even the calling to bring you here to this retreat. Perhaps what was your motivation for coming here? For me, this calling, you know, as I reflect, I reflect that at seven, eight years old, I lived in the Boulder Creek Mountains. And I had a lot of pain and a lot of turmoil and a lot of things I didn't understand happening in my home. And uh, I kind of had free reign. So what I would do is I would just go up into the mountains. Just, I'd just run away at like seven years old. But I wasn't really running away. I was just going up into the mountains. And what I remember, like the earliest memory that I have of what I would call meditation was just sitting and listening to nature. And that there would be a calm, there would be a peace that would come over me. And it was kind of an escape. And you know, I was seven, so sometimes I made up stories of goblins or, you know, trolls that were chasing me or wood elves or, you know, whatever the stories were. But there was some ease that would come, some quiet that would come early on. And I actually had forgotten about that for years until just doing some, you know, some, some healing work around my own childhood. So that's probably the first inspiration of this kind of uh, what we call the Dharma truth in nature. The first experience, I was seven, eight years old. And, you know, and then later, fast forward, the calling to practice. Uh, really, I was court-ordered. <laughs> I mean, let's not, let's not joke about it. I was court-ordered to meditate. Pretty much it was meditate or go to jail. So I went and saw a psychologist... And he taught me about some breathing exercises. And uh, it was helpful. Very simple. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. So this coupled, you know, maybe with some of those earlier experiences, I had, I had some, some positive shift that took place. And it was a gradual process, but it had some <coughs> positive shift. So the Buddha had some calling as well. You know, the story of the Buddha is that he, you know, was this prince and that he grew up in this lavish lifestyle. And that early when he was born, there were some prophets that said that he was either going to be a great king or a great politician or a great healer. And the... Uh, I'm not sure, actually, as we look at the, the teachings now, 
whether he his father was actually a king or like a governor. You know, and the idea of uh, but regardless, political, influential, wealthy, definitely for his time, and really wanted to protect the interest of his son, and have his son move into this kind of, uh, you know, this the the lifestyle. Kind of like if you have kids and you want your kids to be a doctor or a nurse or a writer or, you know, whatever, Olympic star of some sort. You kind of put some energy for them to go that direction. So the, you know, Siddhartha Gautama, so in, you know, in his life he grew up in this way. And then at some point in his, you know, in his adulthood he, he had married, had a child. And, you know, real early on, you know, he was born uh, and his mother, I think uh, Bob actually talked about this, his mother had died uh, shortly after his birth. And he was raised kind of by his aunt. And so, as, as you know, the, as his mother. And um, so just, I mean, just imagining that early wound, right? That early attachment wound. And then later became very curious about what, what's happening in the world because his parents were being protective. Yeah. And so he had this calling and he basically, you know, he saw old age, sickness, and death. And, you know, the stories that, you know, he saw, he snuck out of the palace and he saw old age, sickness, and death all in one day and he was like, you know, mortified. Whoa, what's going on? But, you know, I think of it slightly differently. I think that, you know, perhaps he had seen old age and sickness and death on some level. But the, at this particular time in the story and in his life, he just saw it a little more clear. You know how you can see something a lot? And then all of a sudden, there's a way in which it affects you in a little deeper way. So I, I, I see this as part of the calling that motivated uh, Siddhartha to go on this journey. So the fourth sign is the kind of the motivation. So the fourth sign is the truth seeker or a monk, a mendicant, that uh, Siddhartha asked his cousin and attendant uh, Chariot, charioteer. Uh, you know what, what's happening here? Who, you know who, who is this person in these robes, and this shaved head? And he said, "This is a person who has, you know, kind of given it all up. Who has renounced or relinquished the, you know, the householder lifestyle in in search of the truth, in search of liberation, in search of freedom." And he became very interested in that. You know, I remember uh, having a, a good friend of mine who began to kind of, like, first he started wearing all white, and then he was, like, going to these meditation retreats, and then he went off to India. And I remember thinking, like, what is that guy up to? Because <laughs> you know? he was like a punk rock street kid. And then all of a sudden he started doing these different things, and I was inspired. I was like, what? It's curious for sure. And that was a little bit of, he was like kind of the, 
the truth seeker for me. And, you know, you might have these experiences in your own life where you've seen a monk or you've seen someone in robes or you've, you know, seen His Holiness the Dalai Lama or, you know, something like this. So this is a way of talking about the calling that we all have. You wouldn't have had a, a calling if you weren't, you're not here. You're here. You had a calling. For some of you, for years you've been coming here. Or many other retreats. So I think it's important to acknowledge that. That we all have a calling. And it, sometimes it calls us back again and again. You know. So even the calling for this particular retreat, and then there's the departure. So let me back up by saying, uh, I have a calling right now to move to Asia. And I've been to Southeast Asia a few times. And I've, done pract- I've had practice there. I've even contemplated becoming a, a monk while I was there in the past. And there's a, so there's a calling for me to go that direction now. Uh, so this is in some, in some ways my last uh, retreat here. I sat my first retreat here with this group, with Mary Grace and Dan was probably there and some other folks. I don't think Bob was there, but that was in 2005. I sat my first five-day retreat here. I had sat other retreats and at Spirit Rock and whatnot, but 2005 I sat the first five-day ISC retreat. I've been here every retreat since. So part of uh, this story for me is the calling to kind of expand out, to see what else is out there. So the departure. So as you were departing to come here, all of the busyness or the nervousness or the, you know, whatever came up for you, all of those fears, those anxieties, those hopes, dreams, fantasies, they happen. I'm just curious to kind of check in. How was your departure? How was your departure? Just kind of check in. My own departure... I was very busy. I just moved out of my place, gave half my stuff away, sold just about everything I owned, departing into homelessness. I have a one-way ticket. And right before going off into the unknown, maybe like you, the unknown, the uncertainty of what's this retreat going to be like? Even if you've been here before, it's always a little bit different, right? So the, the Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha-to-be, 
you know, he had a departure as well. That he had, he was so moved by this, like uh, seeing these signs and you know having this kind of opening, this calling, this kind of pulling. I can imagine this kind of pulling him, as I have felt pulled into retreats. Actually, I have to go. Matter of fact, as soon as I leave here and I get on a plane and I go to Asia, I'm going on a train and a boat and a bus. And then I'll end up in some remote location on a meditation retreat that I've never been to before. And I'm excited and I'm nervous. Leaving what is known. Leaving what is known to what is unknown. You know, the fear or the uncertainty. Sid left his family. I call him Sid. <laughs> he left his family he left a, his newborn baby wealth relative ease of a lifestyle where you know he didn't want for anything to go off to see what's there to look within. And I feel like this is exactly what we're asked to do when we come here. You know, let it go. You've been here several days. We've been doing the best we can, right? Letting it go. We have a few uh, more connections than maybe Sid did back then. I don't think there was Wi-Fi. 4G but so this but nonetheless this departure difficult challenging never easy and we've you know we've all kind of transitioned through many departures in our lives right so then the next kind of phase is actually a fairly long phase in the Buddhist, in the, the hero's journey, in the Buddhist story. It's the struggle. Who here knows about struggle? Yeah. Yeah. How have you struggled during this retreat? How have you struggled? The thoughts, the body, emotional content, stories that won't go away. They keep coming back again and again. So Siddhartha struggled in many of the same ways. And actually, you know, Dan spoke about him the other day. He spoke about the hindrances. And that there's these five hindrances that we, uh, in essence, are doing battle with. And in the hero's journey, the battle uh, of these hindrances and their personification is Mara. Mara is, uh, and it's like the, the kind of the, the king of Greed, hatred, and delusion. 
I actually think about it more from a psychological perspective. That Mara is the, the, these qualities that afflict our minds. The, the greed, the kind of fantasies, the desires. The hatred, the ill wills, the resentments, the no, I won't forgive, the why did this happen, all of this content, mental content. You know, the ignorance, the delusion that keeps us spaced out or checked out, unaware. So, yeah, Mara is alive and well. Right. And I, I love the use of the hindrances as a way of talking about that. Because we can all relate. <coughs> Who hasn't been sleepy or resentful? You know. Who hasn't had a restless mind, a restless body? Who hasn't had doubt? Anyone hasn't had doubt this retreat? <laughs> I remember my first retreat here. I really wanted a cheeseburger. (laughs) I did. I was going to... They didn't have a gate then. (laughs) I didn't, but I really wanted to go to Carpo's. So there's this struggle. We get this, this kind of... This affliction, you know. We get afflicted. And what I love about this retreat process is that when there, because this is the struggle that happens all day, every day. And when we can get in an environment where it's quiet, where we can calm it down, where we can begin to kind of focus the attention and our nervous system settles a little bit, then what happens? Well, there's a lot of the multiple hindrance attack, as Bob likes to call it. The MHA. <laughs> you have to look out for that. And so this happened, you know, in the story of the Buddha too, the Buddha to be. As a matter of fact, up until the Buddha's enlightenment, he battled the hindrances. So be easy on yourself. Up until the moment of release from suffering. So it's really important for us to bring in that compassion. These are habits that are deep. One of my favorite ways in which uh, is talked about the Buddha beginning to uh, see clearly while being bombarded by greed, hatred, and delusion in all of its ways is that... uh, the Buddha-to-be Siddhartha began to say, I see you, Mara. I see your tricks. I'm not falling for them anymore. I see you. I see you greed. I see you resentment. I see you doubt. And then with a loving kind, like not, I'm going to kill you now and stamp you out, but more like, I see you, and I see what you're trying to do. I'm just not going to buy it anymore. (coughs) And that in this way, 
we get to see that there's part, these are parts of ourselves too, right? So this struggle <laughs> in my generation, there's this like there's this thing we say the struggle is real. The struggle is real. So I see you, Mara, this like, it's a great intervention when we're kind of getting uh, stuck in the different stories, right? I see you, Mara, this awareness practice. We've been working on it time and time again. Aim the attention, sustain the attention, noticing when the attention wanders off. Ah, I see you, Mara. Am I lost in a fantasy or a story? Am I avoiding some physical pain? What's happening here? And then the invitation to come back with some compassion, some loving kindness. So after the struggle, you know, for uh, Siddhartha Gautama, it was a seven-year struggle. So we're just working with five days here, right? And it, you know, it's not all a struggle, right? All five days haven't been a struggle. It hasn't been a struggle constantly, has it? Five days, maybe pretty close, but you get longer, seven days, ten days, you start to feel some of the cycles, the circles, the shifts. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty positive there hasn't been struggle for everyone all the time. Otherwise, why would you still be here? Or why would you have come back? So the, the awakening, the stage of the, the arc of the journey, the awakening. By the way, the calling, the departure, the struggle, the awakening. This is the phase that we're at in the arc of this retreat. The awakening. Leaning a little towards the return, but not quite there yet. So in the awakening, the Buddha awakened to many people would say uh, the first kind of uh, uh, awakening experience was actually seeing clearly into the three marks of existence or the three characteristics of existence. I'm going to touch, some of these have been touched on already, but I'm going to touch on them a little bit first and then moving into others of the awakening and then see how this has been true for you because we've been pointing you this direction okay so the three characteristics of existence the three kind of great insights that the buddha had is uh, one dukkha suffering seeing that there is suffering the unsatisfactoriness in this life and then anicca anicca is impermanence or change the impermanent nature of things. And then uh, anatta, or not-self, no fixed or permanent self, which Bob talked quite a bit about last night. And all of these, we've been weaving these themes in. So you recognize them, right? Suffering, the impersonal nature of things, that which arises passes away. These are considered the three marks of existence. And these three um, great insights 
the Buddha began to see clear. And that, the way I understand it, my, my perspective of the, this story is that that propelled him into uh, the full awakening. To see the release from suffering. To experience the release from suffering. So I want to read this um, teaching from the Buddha. It's a little book I got uh, on a retreat with Jack Cornfield some years ago. It's called The Teachings of the Buddha. Basically, it's all of Jack Cornfield's favorite little teachings that he wrote into a book. Three characteristics. All formations are transient. All formations are subject to suffering. All things are without a self. Therefore, whatever there, whatever there be of form, of feeling, perception, mental formation, or consciousness, whether past, present, or future, one's own external, gross, or subtle, Lofty or low, far or near, one should understand according to reality and true wisdom. This does not belong to me. This am I not. This is not myself. The three characteristics of existence. So what does that really mean? One of my favorite one of my favorite uh, examples of this is shit happens. All things change. Don't take it personal. <laughs> and this has been really helpful for me to learn. Shit happens. Right? Suffering, dukkha, and how and how does that play itself out? So one of the ways in which I like to think about this is pain versus suffering. I have a tattoo on my thumb. It's an arrow. There's only one. There's a story in Buddhism that goes, it's actually the story of the two darts, but I like arrows better. <laughs> and the, the story goes that uh, pain is inevitable in this life. <clears throat> that pain is inevitable. It's the first arrow of life. We, there will be old age. There will be sickness. There will be death. There will be loss. There will be grief. This will happen. And attending to that first wound is really what we're being what is being pointed to here. And what we're inviting you to do again and again. And in the story, what happens is that we often take a second arrow and stab ourselves, avoiding the pain of the first arrow. Life is painful. Is it not? Is there anyone here who has not experienced the pain of this life? Right. What we call suffering uh, is the second layer, the second arrow. And you know, this is kind of a strategy and for someone like me, it's a strategy, and maybe for you, it's a strategy that I, I learned and I adopted. And at first it was seeking pleasure was my second arrow. Seeking pleasure. Eating too many cookies. 
and avoid feeling lonely or sad, you know. And then it progressed into doing lots of illicit substances. Not helpful. So this is the, the, the second arrow that we talk about. The hope, the intention for all of the teachers here is that through this practice we can begin to attend to the first wound. And sometimes we've gone a long time without actually attending to that wound. Right? This has been true for me. And so we have all these strategies to avoid dealing with the first wound. So there's, there's a few ways in which I'd like to just briefly talk about suffering. Uh, but then we'll move on. So just so you can have a, a frame of what this word dukkha means. right? Dukkha is one of the ways that I like it. The, descri- the description that I heard once before that I really enjoyed was uh, dukkha can be translated to impatience. So patience, no suffering. Impatience, suffering. So one way to think about it. A few other translations. The suffering of suffering. This is uh, dukkha dukkha. So this is what I talked about. This kind of, where we're kind of stabbing ourselves with the second arrow to avoid the initial pain. Or that there's pain or there's some kind of uh, suffering story created. And then we're creating more suffering as a way to try to cover up or avoid the first initial pain. Dukkha dukkha. Sometimes we hold on to suffering and dwell on it, right? Even looking forward to it. Some people get conditioned to accepting suffering as this part. This is, this is the way things are. This is actually what I deserve. I've been in this place. Even though uh, it gets in the way of our own peace and ease and our usefulness to others, we continue the process. So another uh, way of talking about suffering is the suffering of change. The suffering of change. So this leads into the second characteristic, anicca, impermanence. Nothing lasts. All things change. The suffering of change is the rope burn that we get when we cling to that which is changing. The rope burn. Right? His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, talked about the root cause of suffering being ignorance and grasping or clinging at the things that change. So the root cause of suffering being ignorance or grasping at the things that change. According to His Holiness the Dalai Lama and consistent with the Buddhist teachings, the root cause of suffering can be eliminated by awareness of mental states as they arise. If we can uh, habituate our minds towards non-grasping and, and in essence transforming our mind and habits, we will gain knowledge and come out of ignorance. And we will also decrease suffering. So as we're kind of gaining more awareness, more insight, we are decreasing suffering. There's a way in which um, they talk about from darkness into light that 
darkness and light can exist in the same place at the same time. So as we're increasing uh, positive mental states, that we are naturally decreasing uh, negative mental states or afflictive mental states. This is some, the byproduct of what happens here. So this last form uh, of suffering that I'll, be, I'll talk about tonight is, is conditioned suffering. Conditioned suffering. So what is conditioned suffering? Well, there's a few ways to look at it. This is influenced by the causes and conditions of our life. Some would call it karma. The causes and conditions. This, that conditionality or causality is one of the ways that it's often talked about. This, that, because of this experience, that happens. Because of this, there is that. I'm not going to get into karma a whole lot, but I just want to briefly mention, since I just did, <laughs> that karma, the direct translation of karma means action. So this, that conditionality is connected to action. And whether that action is mental, physical, verbal, it has a momentum. There is a, there is a momentum that takes place. And whether or not that plays itself out in some way from this schema. There is some suffering that happens within our hearts, minds, lives that is causal. So we'll talk a little bit about what to do about all this later. But just to kind of understand that. Right? Now just thinking about the cycles, there's these cycles of suffering, right? These stories that we hold on to that are causing suffering. The belief systems that we have about ourselves. You know, I've, hold on, I've held on to a lot of belief systems about myself. And slowly over time beginning to unravel. There's still some that are so deep. You know. I see them. But they still cause me suffering. These patterns, these beliefs. So how has this been experiencing, I mean, how has this experience been happening for you? Just to kind of check in. How have you experienced either this uh, dukkha dukkha, the suffering of change, or this conditioned suffering, perhaps. Just to recognize for yourself. So the next piece of uh, this puzzle of the three characteristics is impermanence, anicca. We've been talking about it. We've been pointing to it in yesterday's instructions, or no, this morning's instructions and through today. The impermanent nature of things. Terrifying on one level, totally freeing on another. The Buddha had this to, to say about uh, anicca or impermanence. Impermanent are all component things. They arise and cease. That is their nature. 
They come into being and pass away. Release from them is bliss supreme. Release from them is bliss supreme. So I believe he's saying that if we don't get rope born, if we let go, then the peace and ease of seeing the impermanent nature of things just is. Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the time or the point of the Buddha's death. So just a side note, uh, the Buddha had an attendant. His name was Ananda. He was also his cousin. And throughout most of his life, most of his teaching career, uh, Ananda was was his homie, was his, his left-hand man. You know, he uh, attended uh, the needs of the Buddha. He uh, was with him in every teaching. He was very close to him. He was also a monk. And at the time of the Buddha's death, uh, Ananda, who had been at every teaching and, you know, supposedly had it down, right, was grief-stricken was off, you know, as his cousin, his beloved teacher is dying. You know, and he's overwhelmed with sadness. And he's off kind of hiding because he's a little bit embarrassed. You know, I'm the uh, attendant to the Buddha. I should, I should have ease with this. And the Buddha uh, heard of this and called him over. And said, now, now, Ananda, haven't I told you so many times? Change or impermanence is the essential characteristic of all phenomenal existence. We cannot say of anything animate or inanimate, organic or inorganic. This is lasting. For even while we are saying this, I would be or it would be undergoing change. All is fleeting. The beauty of flowers, the birds' melody, the bees' hum, the sunset's glory. This doesn't mean that Ananda wasn't sad. He was sad. And there's a way in which, you know, it, it can both be, so this is all illusion, and yes, everything is changing, and... It can be a painful illusion. It's painful. Our attachment can cause pain. So uh, the Buddha is talking about some of the words of the uh, contemplation and meditation of this uh, of uh, anicca of this impermanent nature. And you know, I was I w- we were giving this instruction today. Abide contemplating the arising and passing of both the arise. I'm sorry. Abide contemplating the arising, the passing, and both the arising and the passing away of each object of awareness. So hopefully you've had some experience of doing this today. Some uh, sound, a sight, a sensation in the body. This is so important in our understanding and our awareness.
uh, Letty Seidau, a 1900s Burmese master, meditation <laughs> master. He said, not seeing the arising and passing away is ignorance. While seeing all phenomena as impermanent is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. So this kind of again and again turning to the arising and passing away. I've been working with this a lot personally. Seeing uh, the arising and passing away of phases of my life. As I'm preparing to move out, uh, the feelings as I'm, as I'm preparing to get on a plane and travel to another country, you know, the, the kind of watching the anxieties and the fears and the excitement and the sorrow and all of it arise and pass away. This too shall pass. It's another way to remember. This too shall pass. So uh, one last way of kind of talking about, this is the Buddha's words on uh, this contemplation of impermanence. The perceiving of impermanence bhikkhus, or you all, meditators, developed and frequently practiced removes all sensual passion, removes all passion for material existence, removes all passion for becoming, removes all ignorance, and abolishes all conceit, I am. So this passion, uh, what's talked about there, is, is like what Bob was talking about last night, this, this uh, desire to be somebody. <clears throat> To be something or to feel nothing. We can get caught in this. And they're like passions that take us over. We get addicted to them. <clears throat> and so this is leading to this conceit I am. This is leading to the third characteristic of existence. Don't take it personal. Don't take it personal. Anatta. Both Mary Grace on the first night gave this uh, nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to be. No one to be. Bob uh, talked numerous points last night about this understanding of uh, anatta, not-self. How has this been working for you? How have you been trying that on? Has there been times where you're able to let go of the attachment to ourselves, to our stories, to our personal stories, personality? Although we imagine ourselves to be a self, a real substantial individual, According to the Buddhist teachings, we are in reality nothing more than a flame-like process, an ever-changing combination of matter and mind, neither of which is the same for two consecutive moments. 
all the components of our being are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and devoid of self. Life is not a being and an identity, but a becoming. Not a product, but a process. There is in actuality no doer, only a doing. No thinking, no thinker, only a thinking. No goer, only a going. Have you experienced this? When we let go of the ideas of me and mine, is there more space? Is there more freedom? One of the ways in which I really appreciate traveling is that there's this way in which letting go of your known way of being. We get so locked in. I've lived in this town for 44 years. I'm 44 years old. And even though I've traveled the world, there's a, there is a, I'm from Santa Cruz. I'm identified in this way. There's identification around it. And traveling, there's a way of kind of shedding the skin. If you've ever traveled or been on another place and then, you know, people ask you, I mean, even Mary Grace talks about at airports. It's a wonderful practice too. I've been at different airports and people don't know who you are or at the park in Volcano or, you know, I was on a, a diving ship off the coast of Thailand several years ago and, you know, someone asked me what I did and I just didn't want to, it just it didn't matter. I was like, I'm a diver. <laughs> because that's what I, I was just diving <clears throat> that there's this freedom that can happen you know this is not self but this I, can we if we can find some way to non-identify to non-personalize now we don't have to travel to the other side of the planet although it can be helpful <laughs> We can just continue to practice this idea of not taking ourselves so damn personally. You know? And just maybe just to laugh at yourself a little bit when you when when it happens. Because it happens. You know. That person took that extra cookie, I'm sure that they were trying to they're saying I'm too fat. You know? I mean, or whatever the scenario is, right? There's some, there's the way in which we personalize things. So I want to read this poem because really this last, this, this, Letting go of your known way of being. The whole world is revealed to your new eyes. This is a poem by Dana Falls. Um, and if you've ever sat with Bob or myself for any length of time, you've heard this poem. I think it encapsulates the, the, both the, the essence of, uh, 
anicca, the impermanent nature of things, and this not taking things personally. There is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt, containing a tornado, dam a stream, and it will carry a new, it will create a new channel. Resist, and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow, and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fears, fantasies, failures, and success, when loss rips off the doors of the heart, or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth and the choice to let go of your known way of being. The whole world is revealed to your new eyes. So this last part I've been really uh, living into. Letting go of my known way of being. And then even being here, it's, it's a new experience. Even though I've been here hundreds of times. So the return. So we're Moving through the awakening into the return. It kind of blends together. So for the Buddha, uh, you know, returning to the world after becoming fully awake to the reality of suffering and its end. This actually wasn't a, an easy task. You know, in the story of the Buddha, upon his full awakening in this kind of peaceful, ease, blissful state, he actually contemplated just being there, just sitting under that tree, and just being awake. Sounds kind of nice, right? And then in the story, um, and this, this is something I learned early on. You know, he began to seek out with his mind's eye. You know, I wonder who could comprehend. This work is so hard. This waking up is so difficult. I wonder. I wonder who could do it. And then he thought back that he had these, these friends that he was hanging out with. And he was doing crazy yoga practices with and deep, you know, concentrated practices with and they were like eating one grain of rice a day and, you know, they were really ascetic. And he thought they were close. They were close. So he thought that. And then there's a way in which uh, he looked over at this pond. One of those stories is that he looked over at this pond and he began to see the lotus blossoms in this pond. And there were white and blue and purple. And there were some lotus blossoms that hadn't bloomed that were just below the surface. And there were some that his awareness he could see that they were so, they were deep down in the mud and they had never 
bloomed. And he began to see that we're all in this similar way. We're all like the seed of this lotus blossom that's down deep in the mud. Have you ever seen where lotus blossoms grow? Stagnant, dark water, right? And through the muck, the inspiration to bloom, to awaken. And so the Buddha was able to see that in every generation there will be some, you know, he called like with less dust in their eyes. There will be some whose, uh, what, did, what did you call it? Yes, gumption or chutzpah is another way that some people call it. <laughs> we'll have enough chutzpah to break the surface, right? to awaken, to see clearly, to gain insight. This is why the lotus blossom has become uh, an icon for awakening. And I remember when I first heard this story and I thought, oh, I could do that. I could do that. Because somewhere deep uh, early on, there was a sprout. And I just had to keep going. You know? So the Buddha saw that there was, you know, there was some that, that could make it, you know, even though this is really a rough road, right? The struggle is real. That we all have the potential to break uh, the water and bloom, to gain that insight, that awakening. So at this point, out of kind of compassion for beings who were still suffering and kind of lost, he began to, he made a resolve to teach. So he got up from his place and he decided to walk from Bodhgaya to Varnasi, which is, it's not a short walk. It's at least a half a day or day's train ride. And on his way there, he was kind of trying to think, okay, what am I going to tell these guys when I meet them? What am I going to say to them? Because they kind of kicked him out of the, the gang, by the way. Because he started to uh, take, you know, a little couple cookies every now and again. <laughs> he, you know, drinking, actually he would, he would drink uh, rice gruel, some rice milk, instead of just one grain because he realized he had to have some sustenance. He couldn't, that starving himself actually wasn't helping him to be enlightened. It actually was just killing him. And then he had to find balance. Just like we all have to find balance. So he ran into these two passerbys. And this is thought to be the first Dharma talk. Mary Grace talked about the other day where he's walking and these two uh, travelers saw him and they were like, they were like, wow, what's up with this guy? He's like glowing and he's all got, got this like aura about him. And so they asked him, you know, what, what's up with, are you, are you like a, an angel? Are you a king? Like, what? And he just kept saying, no, no. And then he said, I am awake. And they were like, oh, right on. <laughs> and they didn't get it 
They didn't get it. And so they kept walking. Okay, you're, you're awake. Right on, man. And so the Buddha continued. And as he continued back to uh, the ascetics, the five ascetics, he said, well, i got to rethink this. Because that wasn't enough. So he formulated what's known as the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path. And once he, re- once he reached his friends, because, you know, I'm awake, was, that was like, yeah, you know, I'm awake. And that wasn't enough. So, you know, he formulated another Dharma talk. And this we know as the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. So as we're returning... We're, we're preparing to go home. We'll talk more about this tomorrow. But there's sometimes in some of the interviews today, there's some fear, some anxieties, some uh, questioning. How do I keep this going? I don't want to lose the concentrated awareness that I have. This kind of, how do we carry this forth? So we'll talk specifics about that tomorrow. Maybe maybe you just can't wait to get out of here. You've been like chomping at the bit the whole time. That's another a whole other piece. So I want to just talk for a few minutes. About the Buddha and his affordable truths as a prescription. So often the, the Buddha was thought to be a like a physician or a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst. And he gave uh, the Four Noble Truths as the first, the first truth. We talked about suffering already, that there's this suffering. The ailment, suffering. The diagnosis, self-centered craving. Clinging, wanting things to be other than they are. The diagnosis. The prognosis. The end of suffering is possible. Prognosis is good. That's a good prognosis. We can definitely lessen suffering. And from the Buddhist perspective, end suffering. Pretty good prognosis. We just have to take the medicine. The prescription is known as the Eightfold Path. So the thing that I think is important to learn or to understand is that the Eightfold Path is not linear. So it's not you do one and then you do two and then you do three. That it's systemic. That it's folding together. Strengthening as we practice. Maybe you've experienced this. As we develop, one strengthens the other. So I'm going to just briefly go over the Eightfold Path. And then we'll call it a night. 
Because you can't talk about all this without talking about the medicine. Basically, they come into three groups, and I like to I've, I've I like to think of them in this way because I think it's helpful as a practice. The ethical integrity, otherwise known as sila, the uh, concentrating practices or bhavana, the the techniques, meditation, <clears throat> all of the things we've been giving you, samadhi, concentration, mindfulness, <clears throat> wisdom, panya. <clears throat> So I like to order them this way because I feel like they're applicable in really working on the ethical integrity. We can do this all day, every day. And that the ethical integrity, this sila, um, I like to see it as uh, not spilling our suffering out into the world. Just doing the best that we can to contain our suffering within ourselves, within our hearts and minds, and then using the other aspects to deal with it. But as long as we're spilling it out, and believe me, I've spilled quite a bit. I have, you know. Um, There's no perfection here. Wise speech. Wise action, wise livelihood, wise speech, you know, abstinence from falsehood, slander, harsh speech, and useless words. Wise action, abstinence from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, and intoxicants that cloud the mind. See, these precepts that we've taken before, they're the protection. I think that they're protecting ourselves and they're protecting the world. This last of the first uh, category, wise livelihood, avoiding any means of livelihood that involves harm or exploitation of others. So why is this helpful? Back to that conditioned suffering. If we can begin to just deal with the first arrow and allow the healing to take place and not spill out and carry it forward, I believe that we can actually lessen our own suffering just right there before we even begin to meditate. Most of the time what happens is in this country, uh, what I have found is that we learn to meditate long before we learn about the, the ethical principles, this ethical integrity. And so if you're like me, and uh, you know, this has maybe not been, this has been challenging, um, one of the things that I realized is that uh, when I began to meditate, all of the ways in which um, I was not holding ethical integrity began to come up and attack me in my mind, like Mara. The greed, the hatred, the delusion, the hindrances. And this was in some ways, and still is in some ways, karma that is being worked out. And so I I do my best every day to try not to spill out. I like to I like this frame. 
And then I feel like the concentration group, this samadhi, this uh, is like, can I be present now with what is happening? That this is so important. And then the, the third group, this panya, you know, uh, uproot all together. That through the, the uh, contemplation, through the mindfulness, through the wise effort, <coughs> through this one-pointed awareness, the calming of the heart-mind, wisdom will arrive. This is the prescription. So on your journey. In closing. Oh, the places you'll go by Dr. Seuss. As we are in a departure. And we've had some struggle. And there's some awakening and some return. I'm afraid that sometimes you'll play lonely games too. Games you can't win because you'll play against you. All alone, whether you like it or not. All alone, you will be something quite a lot. And when you're alone, there's a very good chance that you'll meet some things that scare you right out of your pants. There are some down the road between hither and yon that can scare you so much you won't want to go on. But on you will go, though the weather be foul. On you will go, though the hacking cracks howl. Onward, up, many a frightening creek. Though your arms may get sore and your sneakers may leak. (laughs) On and on you will hike. And I know you'll hike far. And face up to your problems, whatever they are. You'll get mixed up, of course, as you already know. You'll get mixed up with many strange birds as you go. So be sure... Where you step, step with care and great tact. And remember that life's a great balancing act. Just never forget to be dexterous and deft and never mix up your right foot with your left. (laughs) So thank you for your time, your attention, your presence, your practice. The journey continues. It's not over yet. <coughs> 10 or 15 minute walking. So we're thinking that um, let's walk for about 15 minutes and then there'll be a bell and perhaps the last sitting will go just a little later than it usually does. We're doing an online achievement. <laughs> and Bob and Dan are in charge. We actually, we actually might just do that. So let's main, let's come back into that meditative experience. 
Enjoy your walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.